0: In the book of 2 Chronicles this morning, we finish out a series we started a couple of weeks ago entitled, If My People. This is the third week of this particular series, a very, very short series. I mentioned that the very first Sunday, uh, but hopefully for you, one that's had a, uh, had a huge impact. I think it's one that we've needed as a church family, and uh, hopefully God has used it for you individually as well. So Second Chronicles chapter 7 is where we're going to be finishing out the series entitled, if my people. You know, a church community, I've been in ministry now for a while. One of the things that I've learned is I've been in different churches through the years, uh, both visiting and also being, you know, just involved in a church, then also serving here now for uh, quite a few Quite a few years as pastor, is that uh, a church is really just a reflection of the individuals that are there. You know, there's nothing mystical that happens to where a church can have just really um, nominal, uncommitted uh, people who are part of that church, but then somehow the church itself overall is going to be just uh, you know an, an amazing force for the message of the gospel. It doesn't work that way. Really, a church a- a- as a whole is going to be reflective of the individuals that make it a church. You know, we are just a collection of redefined people uh, in our first service when we had. Baptist Jeremy, uh, when he baptized Riley Bach, one of the ways that he described him as a fifth grader who's given his life to Christ is that he has a new identity now. You know, he has a new identity in Christ that his his, uh, God sees him differently because of a relationship with Jesus. And for us as a church family, for all of us who've given our lives to Jesus, we are redefined people. It's like we're one big bowl full, right? We have all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different life experiences. We work different jobs. We live different places. We have different family makeups, but we are one collection, a bowl full of people whose lives have been redefined. That's what makes the church. And so the church is not buildings. The church is not programs. The church is people. And so when we think of ourselves as a church, here's the thing, for we collectively as a church, our ministry is only going to be as strong or effective as we are individually. And so if we are filled with people who are very hot in their their relationship with God, they're very hot in regards to their heart for other people, their heart for the gospel, and and if we're passionate about walking closer with God, then we as a church are going to be a reflection of that. We as a church as a whole are also going to have a heart for God. God is probably going to bless and use us. But if we are a collection of people whose hearts and lives are very nominal, we're kind of on the fringes, we don't really pursue God, we don't have a huge heart for God, we don't care much about the things of God, we care more about what relates to us and about things of the world, then we're going to reflect that as a church. And in the same way, if we're somewhere in the middle, you know, we're not hot, we're not cold, we're lukewarm, well, the Bible has a lot to say. God has quite an opinion about those who are believers who are very lukewarm in their faith. And so God wants us to be very close to Him. God wants us to be sold out, committed. He wants us to be yielded. He wants us to be humble, and He wants us to be His people. And so as we look through Scripture, we find many, many instances where God deals with His people, sometimes in very bold ways, sometimes with great blessing. Sometimes it's when he takes inventory of their lives, and he gives them the strength to make the changes then that are needed. Whenever, whenever I was uh, in high school, I played basketball. I played on our school team. I didn't play very well, but I played on our school team, and uh, they let me hang around, I guess, for a while. And then after school, I would uh, I would at times play, play pickup, right, as some of you may have done back in the day. And so I'd play pickup ball. And there was one particular instance where I was playing a pickup game with a group of guys. And uh, it was one night, I forget what night of the week it was, and uh, soon after, it, I was in college, and, um, and so as I was playing, I, I had the ball, I was driving the lane, and I went left, and as I came into the lane, I rolled my ankle, right, I stepped on the guy who was covering me, he stepped on his foot, rolled my ankle, off it went, and so uh, as a result of that, I couldn't play anymore that night, I went home, iced it, it like, just, you know, swelled up, the next day I went to, uh, I went to a doctor, went to an orthopedist guy, and so he, he put me through a, a test, And it was a a test that lacked compassion. And it was a test that was very hard-hearted. Dan Vicala, I'm sure, will relate to this and take great joy in this story. And so, uh, and so as I sat there on the table, he, the, the, uh, the guy took my ankle, and he basically recreated what I had done about 12 hours before. And he torqued it, right, and twisted it, and, and just and very heartless. No way he could have been a Christian. And so he twisted this thing, right? And, uh, <laughs> and so he twisted it, and, and what he was doing was, I suppose, checking to see if the ligament still worked, which I could have told him very quickly. None of the three did. And so after he did that little test, The next, uh, you know, soon after that, surgery was scheduled. So, six weeks in a cast, repairing three torn ligaments on the outside of my ankle. And so, I say all that to say this is that it was that very simple test that did two things. One, it revealed the issue, it revealed what had to be addressed and had to be addressed quickly. But at the same time as revealing what the issue was, it also put in action the remedy that would need to take place afterwards. And so I could have been hobbling along the rest of my life, right, with all three ligaments torn to my ankle, and anytime I'm in the backyard with the kids, say, hey, go along. Oh, wait, dad can't play. You know, it'd be the rest of my life, or I could have it dealt with, exposed and then dealt with. And, And when I think back to that story, I think about how God often works in our lives. But there are many, many times where he does the hard work of the great physician, where he exposes what is out of place. He exposes what is not right. He exposes what needs to be addressed so that in that process of exposing it, which is sometimes very, very painful, we can then take the steps to remedy it so that we will be different as the days move forward. You know, when we look in the pages of Scripture, we find Old Testament, New Testament examples alike where God deals with His people. He deals with sin that we embrace. He deals with priorities that are out of place. He deals with things that are out of alignment. And He does that in ways that sometimes are not always very comfortable. But as He exposes things that are not right in our lives, He then begins the process, if we are willing to work with Him, to begin to remedy those things, to heal us, and to do what only he could do in the days to come. In the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 7, really chapter 6 and 7, we find this was a period in Israel's life where they had never been better. Man, life was good. They probably all had those t-shirts, right, that said life is good. Things were going well militarily. They were strong as a nation. Financially, they were wealthy. They had no needs seemingly in the world. Uh, They had leadership they had 40 years of Saul 40 years of David 40 years of Solomon right these were good days they had good solid leadership for the most part And they were yet at the same time in a place where they were drifting away from God. In 2 Chronicles chapter 6, they had just completed the temple that Solomon would oversee. Solomon would build this temple, and now God's people would have a place where they could say, this is God's house. Now, the New Testament, that would change. Not so much emphasis on temple, because you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, you become God's house. And so, in the Old Testament, however, God would have a place where he would say, this is my residence. This is where my presence can be found. This is where I am. This is where you'll come and pray to me. This is where you'll come and worship me. This is where you'll come and serve me. It would be the temple. And so Solomon builds this temple uh, and and he, he begins to lead the people then to dedicate it to the Lord. And in chapter six, all that pretty much takes place. In chapter 7, he prays. The people acknowledge the significance of this event. But it's going to be in chapter 7, then, that God is going to come and he's going to have conversation, so to speak. He's going to come and visit Solomon in the night. And he's going to give a message for Solomon. He's going to give a message for God's people, the people of Israel. He's going to give a message that ultimately will trickle all the way down to you and me if we're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's going to be this message that's going to be monumental, that's going to lay out the parameters that we looked at two weeks ago, and the very simple truth that when we come to God, we have to come to Him on His terms and not ours. That he's not a God who strikes a lot of deals, right? We can't come to him and say, God, you know, I'm going to give you 50% of my heart, 50% of my life, maybe 70, maybe even 80 or 90, but I want to keep this other 10% for myself, if you will. You just kind of stay in your box over there. I'm going to keep this part of my life for myself, and I'm going to do whatever I want here. God doesn't make those kinds of deals, right? We come to him either on his terms or we don't come at all. We don't come with our list of demands. We don't come saying, all right, God, if I'm going to follow you, this is the way it's going to be. We don't do that. That's not the way God operates. We come on His terms, not ours. And as we saw last Sunday, part of the catalyst of that happening is that we come in humility and we come in prayer. We humble ourselves and we yield ourselves, we pray. But then there are two other components to how we come to God and how we experience ultimately what I would call revival in our lives where God begins to do work that we haven't experienced in a long time and that ultimately can bleed out into a community that desperately, desperately needs a Savior. And so let's jump in here. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Let's begin verse 12, and we'll read down through verse 14, and then we'll look at the last two components of how God brings revival to His people. It has nothing to do with scheduling it on a calendar. It has everything to do with the position of our hearts. Second Chronicles chapter 7. Let's jump in here, verse 12. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night, and he said to him, I have heard your prayer, and I've chosen this place, the temple, for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locust to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land." God makes certain promises there to his people. And the reason I believe that he would make these promises is because we at times come to a place where we do not realize how badly we need him. We do not realize until he does a little test like the doctor would do, he, he, we don't realize how much we have perhaps wandered from him. I want to give you just a quick little list that I came across before we begin to dig into this passage of Scripture to finish out this series that I hope for you will serve as somewhat of a test of your own. It'll be a a bit of an inventory of your heart. Uh, Don't try to write these down. I know some of you won't sleep well tonight if you don't write down the list that I give you. Just try, uh, say a prayer, God will help you sleep well. Don't try to write all these down. There's about 11 questions, but just listen, consider them, and let's evaluate and see how badly perhaps we need revival in our own lives. Question number one, to ask yourself, am I as much in love with Jesus as I have ever been? Question number two, am I more concerned about what God thinks about my life than about what others think? Question three, do I consistently obey what I know God wants me to do? Question four, do I confess my sins by name? You know, sometimes we have a tendency, don't we, to where we, we kind of, before we go to bed at night, say, oh, God, forgive me if I've sinned. <laughs> and we know full well where we've sinned and how we've sinned and what we've done in the sight of God. We just don't want to name it because we don't want to have to admit that. Do I confess my sins by name? Number five, are my conversations and my behavior pure and above reproach? Number six, am I sensitive to the conviction and the promptings of the Holy Spirit? Number seven, does my schedule reveal that God is first in my life? Number eight, does my checkbook reveal that God is first in my life? Number nine, next to my relationship with God, is my relationship with my family my highest priority? Number 10, am I willing to sacrifice whatever is necessary to see God move in my life and church? That being time, convenience, comfort, reputation, etc. Number 11, do I pray specifically and faithfully for revival? God says, if my people, the word if is there for a reason, it's a condition. That if you do this, I will do that. If my people who are called by my name, he's not speaking to the world. He's not speaking to those outside the body of Christ. He is speaking specifically to his people for us today, 2,000 years after Christ has come. We would refer to that as those who have placed their faith in Jesus. So God speaks to his people. He speaks to us collectively as part of the fellowship of Christ. He says, if my people who are called by my name will, one, humble themselves, two, pray, three, seek my face, four, turn from their wicked ways. He says, I will do three things. One, I will hear their prayer. What an amazing promise that is. God says, when you hit your knees and when you pray, I'm going to hear that and I promise you I will. I will hear your prayer. I will forgive your sins. I will wipe the slate clean. I will give you a brand new life. I'll give you a brand new start. I will keep that slate clean. Never again will I hold your sin against you. I will forgive your sin and I will heal your land. And I think part of that we can understand can trickle down to us as individuals that God will bring healing. He does not necessarily bring healing to every ailment that we have physically, obviously, because Christians die every day of physical ailments. What he promises is, is that he will heal us in the greatest areas of need, that being spiritually. He will heal us of brokenness. He will heal us of alienation. He will bring us fellowship within, with Himself as we come to Him on His terms, not on ours. It's an amazing promise that God makes. And so we've looked at the need for humility. We've looked at the need for prayer last Sunday. Today, let's look at what it means to seek His face and what it means to turn, as it says here, from our sin or from our wicked ways. Here, here's a takeaway that I hope you'll jot down. And then I hope you remember the takeaway is this, that seeking and turning are often one specific motion. When we think of seeking God's face and turning from our sin, it is often one specific motion. It's not as though we say, okay, today I'm going to seek God, and then tomorrow I'm going to turn away from my sin. It, it doesn't usually operate that way. Usually, we seek God and we turn from our sin all in one specific motion. They often, you find seeking and turning, holding hands, right? They run together. They run on the, on the same track. Now, here's something to keep in mind when we think about seeking God's face, when we think about turning from our sin. Here's something we need to keep in mind when it comes to, to seeking. We only seek those things that we desire the most, right? You understand. You only seek those things that you desire the most. When I go shopping for groceries, I don't go seeking for organic Brussels sprouts, right? There's a reason that I don't seek for organic Brussels sprouts. The reason is for that is because I have absolutely zero zip, not a no desire for Brussels sprouts of any kind, much less the organic ones, okay? Now, if anyone could make them to where I would give them a taste, it would be my wife. However, generally speaking, Brussels sprouts aren't something that I desire. Now, I'll step on you and over you for a glazed Krispy Kreme, but Brussels sprouts of any variety, I'm not going to go chasing after those things. Why? Because I don't desire them. We only seek those things that we desire. Could we possibly then accurately say that perhaps within churches like our, far and wide, the reason that those churches are not more characterized by a seeking after the face of God, not just his hand and what he'll give us, but after his face to know him and to walk with him and to spread him far and wide. Maybe the reason that churches are not characterized by that kind of a seeking is because we don't really flat honestly desire him that much. There are other pursuits that we place a higher priority on. There are other things that we would rather pursue than a deeper relationship with God that marks our lives, that marks our lives deeply. See, we only seek after the things that we desire the most. And I would say, when it comes to seeking as well, in order for us to seek and find, we often have to let go of what we currently have. You were a four year old once. Maybe you've had a four-year-old, or maybe you've cared for a four-year-old. Imagine in your mind a four-year-old with a toy that is their toy. And you know it's their toy because if you ask them or try to take it, they'll say, mine, right? It is marked as theirs. Now imagine for a moment that there's a little kid in their little play group that also has a toy. Now, as that four-year-old holds their own toy close to their chest, clutching it with their hand, they're not going to go seeking for it, right? They've already got it. No need to search for what you already have. But when they want something that they desire more, what's going to happen? Two things are going to happen all in one motion. They are going to let go of what they currently have and go after what they want more of right? It's all one motion. I want that more, so I'm going to let go of this, and in the same motion, I'm going to go after what I now desire for a four-year-old at some other kid's toy, more than likely, right? They want more. Now, when we bring this back to this passage, here's the thing. God is saying to his people, you are going to go after all kinds of things other than me. You're going to chase after false gods. There's going to be a day when you put me down further, 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 further on your list of priorities. You're going to have all kinds of other pursuits in your life, there are going to be numerous things God says that are going to take my place, and there's going to be a day where you're going to experience brokenness over that because everything else will leave you bankrupt, God says, except for me. And so when you come to that place, I'm going to make your promise that if you, as one of my people, will humble yourself, and if you will pray, and you'll come back to me, and if you will seek my face, how, how do you do that? With all your heart, as we'll see in a second. And if you, as you seek me, turn from your wicked ways in one motion, if you let go what has taken my place, and then seek after me the way that I tell you to, you're going to find me, and I'm going to hear you, and I'm going to forgive you, and I'm going to heal you. But you're going to have to come in one motion. You're going to have to let go of what has taken my place, what sin has come into your life. And as you let go, you're going to have to turn 180 and come to me on my terms. It's a transaction that God plays out in the lives of people every single day. And we have to decide what matters more. The sin that we so often allow to take in place are the God of the universe who created us and made us. We have to decide. It's like being in debt financially, right? If a person's in debt and they decide to seek financial freedom, we'll call it that. Then they got to decide whether they're going to let go of some stuff that's kept them from being financially free. That's put them in slavery and debt. They got to decide, am I willing to give up eating out every night, cable, you know, uh, you know, NFL network, whatever it may be, Ruth Chris, you know, every weekend. They got to decide, am I going to give up all this stuff? in order to be financially free. Because I can't hold on to both. I can't keep my old habits and my old way of spending and also be free financially. I got to make a decision. And if they decide I want to be out of debt, I want to be financially free, they're going to have to let go of this. And as they do, pursue something that's going to help them to be where they ultimately want to be financially. It's the same in our relationship with God as believers. We cannot hold on to the ways of the world and things that we know are sinful in our lives in one hand and also at the same time try to keep our foot in relationship with God and closeness to him and expect to have a walk with him and a peace that comes with that and a sense of joy and fulfillment while we're hanging on to the world and trying to hang on to him at the same time. It just doesn't work. And so God says to his people, you have to make a choice. And there were many, many times in Jesus' ministry where he would, he just flat lay it out there as Candace would say, tabletop flat, right? He would lay the truth out there and he would say, choice is yours. I'm the son of man, I'm the son of God, I've come to, uh, to, to bring life, to bring up more abundantly. People would come to him, ask him about that, he would lay it out there nice and clean and nice and plain and nice and, and, and clear, and then they would have to decide. And there were instances in the Gospels where people would hear Jesus' uh, uh, conditions that if you're going to follow me, you have to take up your cross, right? you have to die to yourself daily and you have to follow me, you have to be my disciple. And, and there would be guys, there would be men, women who would walk away from that often in the Gospels. Jesus would let him go. It's our choice. We have to decide. Either we're all in or we're not. Either we're hot or we're cold. There is no lukewarm. And to his people, like a master physician, there are times where God presses on areas of our lives. And he puts his finger there and it hurts because it's an area that we've taken to ourselves we don't want to give it up, and we know it's not what God desires in an attitude or a lifestyle or a part of our behavior. And it's not about being legalistic. It's about whether or not we want to live a life of purity, surrendered to the Lord Jesus. What does it look like? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29. You can see it on the overhead. This is what it looks like to seek after God with all of our heart, to seek His face. He says, from there... The context here, the people of God in the Old Testament, they have been set free from Egyptian slavery, and uh, now they're headed into the promised land, and and God says, when you get there, there are going to be times when you're going to walk away from me. He says, from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if, here's the condition, you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. Again, God is saying, I'm not a deal-making God. I'm not making deals. 90%, you know, I'm not going to cut you some slack and say, that's okay. You know, i got a lot of people already that are fully committed. I'll take a few at 90%. That'll work for me. God's not going to say that. God's going to say, if you're going to follow me, you're either all in or you're not. And so it doesn't mean we don't have times of struggle. It doesn't mean that that, that we're not human and and that we don't have periods of time where we wrestle with God. There are times that 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 comes to every believer. I think what God is looking at here, he says, there needs to be a point in our lives where we drive a stake in the sand and say, God, I am all in the best that I can. And when you deal with me, I want to be responsive to that. And I want to be your man. I want to be your woman, your boy, your girl. I want to go after your will and follow you the best I can with all my heart. And God says, when we do that, we'll find him. Look at what it says in Jeremiah 29, verse 13. We look at this verse a few weeks ago in the context series. Uh, the, the context of this is uh, absolute trial and brokenness for the people of God. God says, you will seek me and you'll find me. The context here is when you're in exile, when you're, when you're in the ditch. He says, you will seek me and you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. If I were to ask a show of hands this morning and ask, how many of you came to a deeper walk with God or you came into a walk with God for the very first time as a result of a deep, dark trial in your life? It would be, it, it would be mind-boggling how many people would say, you know what? God used the, one of the darkest moments of my life to bring me to himself because it was there when I wasn't comfortable anymore. It was there whenever I had hit bottom. It was there whenever the wheels were coming off and the walls were closing in. It was there that I ultimately decided that I'm going to be all in with this person of Jesus Christ. And I came to him with all my heart. And you know what? He was true to his word. I found him there. <laughs> and he's never left me ever since. Look at what it says elsewhere. 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9. This is David, Solomon's father. Solomon, again, would build the temple. Solomon is the one that's in the context of 2 Chronicles chapter 7. He says here, David says to him, as for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father. Serve him with a whole heart, with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts, and he understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. You know, there can be a great debate. Do, we re- do people really have the capacity to seek after God? I mean, really, if, if, if we're dead in our trespasses and sins, do we really have the capacity to seek after God? We'll let the theologians figure that one out. All I know is in these three verses that I just looked at, God says, and he calls us to seek him. And he says that if we seek him, he's going to let us find him. It's like playing hide and seek, right? It's like playing hide and seek with your little kids. You don't want to hide from, you don't want to just be hid as a parent, right? You're like a 40 year old parent, and you've got a six year old looking for you. You don't want to be hiding behind the boat in the backyard, you know, for like 12 hours, you know, taking joy. Like, they never found me. No, no. After about three minutes, you, you, you kind of like slip out and let them say, oh, you found me, right? That's what you want. You want your kids to find you. God is not hiding behind some gigantic, massive wooden door in heaven saying, I hope my people never find me, right? He is not doing that. He wants you to find him. He wants you to exchange when you go searching for fulfillment in some other relationship or some kind of career or or bending the rules ethically in some area thinking, this is going to help me to finally hit the bullseye, hit the big time. God doesn't want that. God knows that leads to a train wreck. And so he's going to bring conviction if you're a believer. And he's going to deal with that sin in our lives. He wants us to find him. He wants us to step and to turn away from that stuff and to find our fulfillment and our life in him. That's what he wants. And he says, if you just seek me, remember, what was the first step? Humble ourselves. In our pride, we will never seek God. But if we humble ourselves and we begin to pray, and we seek after him, as these three passages have said, Deuteronomy, J- Jeremiah, 1 Chronicles, Second Chronicles. He says, you'll find me. You'll find me because I want you to know me. If my people who are called by my name will just humble themselves, pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, I promise you I will hear from heaven. I will wipe the slate clean. I will forgive your sin. I'll never hold it against you again through a relationship with Jesus, and I'll heal your land. What about for us as Christians? Is this a matter of setting the bar so high that we can never attain it? We're always going to struggle, and there will be times where we, where we fail as believers. But when the condition of our heart is right, God does an amazing thing even to those who fail. Look at what it says, 1 John 1, 9 on the overhead. Another conditional word, by the way, 1 John 1, 9. When we sin, when we fall as believers, if, there's that word, if we confess our sins, agree with God, admit it, God, I blew it, here's where I blew it. He is faithful and He is righteous. He is just to forgive us of our sins and to, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Seeking and turning are more often than not one specific movement. We let go of what has come between us and God. And I don't know what that might be for you today. Maybe for you, you're totally confessed up. I mean, you, you can't think of a sin in your life that, that, that you haven't already admitted to God and tried to put away. And, and, I, and I hope that's the case. But maybe for some today, and I imagine in a room this size, there are, there are quite a few, that God has been wrestling with you as a Christian about some, some area of sin in your life. And the decision has to be, am I willing to let go of that sin and to turn from it and in the same motion begin to seek the face of God? God has thrown back the curtain. And he stepped out from behind that boat in the backyard, right? And he said, here I am. And if you'll seek for me with all your heart, you'll find me. Probably no greater missionary in all of Scripture than the Apostle Paul. If you're not familiar with Paul, and I don't take for granted that you do, that you are familiar with him. Some of you, you're brand new to reading the Scripture. Paul is one you'll read of often in the New Testament. His story is captured largely in the first nine chapters of the book of Acts. It's kind of sprinkled throughout there. But in chapter 9 especially is where we read of how Paul turned from his sin and placed his faith in Jesus. So radical was the change in Paul's life that the people that he had once persecuted for proclaiming the gospel would wonder if they could ever even trust him again because he had been so mean, wicked, and nasty to them. And yet the change in Paul's life was radical. It was a drastic transformational change when Paul gave his life to Christ. And God would ultimately work in Paul's life to put him on mission, taking the gospel to those who needed to hear, specifically to those who were not Jews. We read in the rest of the book of Acts from chapter 9 all the way through pretty much the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul, right? How God used him and blessed him and spread the gospel message all over that part of the world because of his faithfulness to the gospel And what we find is, as we read in the book of Acts, is that Paul would often get in trouble, right? Because the world didn't always want to hear that message. And so when he would be faithful to proclaim the message, there'd be times where he would be beaten. There'd be times when he would be stoned and left for dead. There'd be times when he would be thrown in prison. Well, in Acts chapter 26, this is one of those examples where he has been arrested for his faithfulness to the gospel. And he has appealed ultimately to Caesar. Paul was a Roman citizen. And so when he was going through trial in this instance, he said, you know what? As a Roman citizen, I I, I appeal to Caesar. I want to take my case to Caesar. And in those days, he would be able to do that. They just kind of dropped everything and said, well, off to Caesar you go. And so he was in the midst of being transported to Caesar when Paul would come across a man named King Agrippa. King Agrippa would be the great grandson of Herod the Great. If you remember the Christmas stories in Matthew and Luke, chapter one and two, remember Herod, right? Who put out the decree about killing all the unborn children ages two and under? This Herod Agrippa was his great grandson. So you can imagine, probably didn't hang out at Chuck E. Cheese a whole lot. Probably wasn't the guy that you wanted to spend much time with and have a great time. He was a mean, wicked, nasty person. And so here Paul is before King Agrippa, and King Agrippa just wants to hear the story. He's like, "Man, I've heard about you. Tell me your story." And so Paul on his way to Caesar, tells his story of how God had changed his life through his relationship with Jesus. In the passage we're about to read, what Paul is doing here is he is telling of how God has now put him on mission to take the gospel to those who need to hear. And how he expresses it is really, really interesting in light of 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Look at what it says here, Acts 26. We're going to pick up kind of midway through and uh, begin in verse 16. So Paul is telling King Agrippa, he's recounting what God had said to him whenever he met Christ. He said, the Lord said to him, get up, stand on your feet. For this purpose, the Lord says to Paul, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. Rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, listen, so that they may turn from darkness and in that same movement turn to light, and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive what? Forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified or made holy and pure by faith in me. Here's what stands out to me. In the book of Second Chronicles 7, hundreds of years before Paul would ever come on the scene, God says, if you'll humble yourself, pray, Seek my face, turn from your wicked ways. I will hear, I will forgive, and I will ultimately heal. He says, You've got to seek me, and you've got to turn from that which stands between you and me. And here comes Paul, hundreds of years later, and what is the message God gives him? To encourage people to turn from darkness, and in that one same motion, to turn to the light, to turn from the dominion, the kingdom of the enemy, Satan, and in that same motion, turn to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, where they'll find forgiveness. They'll find an inheritance and where they will be made pure in the sight of God. And it's that same movement, listen, that I think God is calling people to today in the body of Christ. People that would have to say, you know what, God, my heart is not hot for you. I don't care about the things of you like I once did. I don't care about whether or not people go to heaven or hell. I don't care enough to pray about that. I don't care enough to have relationships with people to kind of help spread the message of the gospel. I don't care about those things. All I want to do is come to church, check the box, and then leave and you bless me. That's really all I care about. And God would say to that person, you are in desperate need of revival because Jesus didn't hang on a cross just for your blessing. He hung on a cross save you from hell, to bring forgiveness to your sin, and to put you on mission to share that same message with those who need to hear. And so where our hearts are hard, where our hearts are stone cold, where our focus is on ourselves, God says, I'll make you, I will make you a deal. That if you humble yourself, and if you pray, and if you seek me, and if you turn from your sin... I will hear, and I will forgive, and I will heal. And the choice is yours. See, you have a responsibility, God says, and I have a responsibility. So this morning, taking inventory of your life, how surrendered would you say your life is? Christian, speaking to the Christians, to the Lord Jesus. How close is your walk today in light of where it was six months ago, a year ago, five years ago? And if people followed you where you are today, would they ultimately get to Him? Or would they show up somewhere else? If they followed you where your heart is in relation to God today, would they get to Him? Or would they end up on some other destination who knows where. You know, the prophet Isaiah, 750 years before Jesus, would give a great invitation. And it's his invitation that we close out this message, that we close out this series. It says Isaiah chapter 55. Look at what he says. The prophet Isaiah, verses 6 and 7. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. And what, a, what we'll find here, he says, and he will have compassion on him and return to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Christian, how much do you need revival today? And are you willing to come to God on his terms? And maybe for you, you've never placed your faith in Jesus. And today the invitation Is before you. Will you come to him on his terms, turning from sin, inviting Jesus, the one who paid for it already, to come in, forgive you, and take over? You can ask him to do it right where you sit, and he'll do it. I promise. Let's pray. God, all over this room today, as we finish out this series, I pray that really your work has only started. God, we are your people and we thank you that you have redefined our lives. And yet at the same time, God, perhaps for many here, there is a a sense of bankruptcy to where we are broken and undone because we have wandered from you. Sin has been embraced. Something else has taken your place. And for some, maybe, Lord, they're in the very midst of the consequences that come when we move the boundaries and live on our terms and not yours. God, perhaps today there are some that it's those consequences that have come that you've begun to use to soften their heart, to draw them back. And Lord, today they've come to a place right where they sit this morning, where you have so worked in their heart and their life to where they are humble. That God, they desire nothing less than to seek you and to find you. And they're at a place to where they're ready to seek you with all their heart. And no matter what that means turning from that's not of you, they're ready and they're willing. God, for those, I pray, if they've already given their lives to Christ, that right now in this moment, they'll just have honest, gut-level conversation with you in prayer. Just naming the ways they've wandered and the sin they've committed. And at the same time, whatever tears may come will be tears of joy, knowing that as you name it, you let it go. Because Jesus paid for it. And Lord, that as they turn from what's taken your place, they turn to you and find life and find forgiveness and freedom and joy and hope and peace and purpose and everything else that you kind of hardwired in us to need when you made us. Lord, this world can't even come close to giving us what only you can. And so, God, today we thank you for the freedom that's coming to some as they come home to you. God, for others, they're here, and maybe even here every week, but they can't remember a time in their life where they've really come to a moment and invited Jesus to forgive them and take over. Lord, maybe today can be the time where they can drive that stake in the ground, and where they sit right now, they can pray, Lord Jesus, and invite you to do whatever, everything you did on the cross to apply it to their life, to their sin. Even asking you, Jesus, to forgive them and to be their Savior, their Lord and to live your life through them from this day forward. And when we do that, Lord, we receive this wonderful thing called salvation. Salvation that never ends, eternal life that starts today and extends throughout forever. And so, God, whatever work you may be doing in us, help us to have the courage and the guts to follow. Lord, it's amazing how this world sometimes sees believers and Christians as as just wimps. But, Lord, I know of no tougher person than the one who's laid down everything to follow you. And so, God, do your work in us. And as you do your part, Lord, help us to do ours and to follow with all of our heart, you. Bless now this time of decision. In Jesus' name, amen.